turning 40, turning 50, turning 60, these milestones, I, I believe, really help you, help one, help women especially, stop caring. Stop caring. We make too many decisions based on what we think we're supposed to do. The job we think we're supposed to have, where we're supposed to live, the guy we're supposed to date, our careers. I mean, and then everybody has a nervous breakdown in their 40s and jettisons half of that stuff because they realize they weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for other people. And then we kind of recalibrate and the dust settles in your 50s and 60s. And then you can sort of reassess what was working, what was not working. It goes, it goes back to bravery and giving yourself permission to not care what people think. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll hear how the pain of divorce led to a humorous and racy first novel and we'll learn how the writing process can evolve from your first book to your second. Hi there, I'm John Patrol's Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray, and this week we're talking about the idea behind the novel Nookie Town. We'll speak with the author V.C. Chickering to find out what inspires her and ask her to share her secrets to success. Our interviewer is Gray Global Planning Director Holly Williams, who spoke to Tori, as her friends call her, on a Microsoft Teams call while at home during quarantine. They chat about what it took for her to get her first novel published and the help she had along the way. VC's essays have appeared in the Washington Post, Cosmo, and Bust magazines. She's written for Comedy Central, MTV, PBS, Lifetime, Discovery, and Oxygen On Air, and was named the Irma Bombeck Humor Writer of the Month for July 2019. A quick warning. This episode discusses some adult themes, acknowledges sex, and might not be suitable for young listeners. You might want to skip this one if you're listening with kids. This is VC Chickering. I was myself in my 40s uh, getting divorced. And when one gets divorced after being married, um, your world just completely crumbles. And I, it's such a horrendous First of all, it's a part-time job. It's such a time, it's not only is it soul-sucking, but it's a time suck. So you've got this part-time job that, and your soul is leaking out of your body and it's so depressing and so heartbreaking and it's embarrassing. There are all these things that you don't think are gonna crop up as a, as a result of going through the divorce process. You finally get through it and there are a million the checklist is so long, you don't think you'll ever get through all the stuff you have to do. The admin, and then you finally come to the end, and then you finally start rebuilding your life. And you uh, decide what that new life is going to be, because now you're the architect of this new normal. And so I finally got to that place where I was figuring out figuring out the rhythm of what this new normal was going to be as so many people have to do, as 52% of people have to do once they get through divorce. And uh, what I discovered was that I was distractedly horny, like all the time, like to this insane 
this almost carnal desire for connection. And I thought I was crazy and of course the only one. And then you start to make friends with other divorcees. You meet them and, you know, you reach out. There might be a Facebook group in your town. Maybe there's, you go to a, you know, some, I took a course for women going through separation, divorce. You know, there are things you can do. Women find each other. Women find community. So what I discover is that they're also feeling the same way. And then we start to share stories. Now, their stories are far and away wilder and racier than my stories. And I'm just listening and listening and listening. And it's hilarious, the stories that they are sharing with me about, you know, jumping the UPS guy for a quickie as he delivers something. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) I mean, the whole... Every cliche you can think of, of the pool boy and, you know, putting a movie on for their little kids. You watch this movie, mommy will be right back in 90 minutes. Or, and then letting somebody in the window and then pushing them out the window again before the movie's over. And, you know, so women, women do insane things. They're, they're this, this something takes over that says, I need to connect again and I need to feel desired and I need to feel wanted. So having that experience, I'm not nearly as adventurous as my new girlfriends. And I cannot compete with the stories I'm hearing, but I'm definitely appreciating what they're going through. So then I would have catch up, you know, dinner, coffee, lunch with my still married friends, which is also what women do. And so we get into the circle And everybody goes around, let's catch up. How's everybody doing? And this one talks about her husband's knee surgery. And the next one talks about the lacrosse tournament. And this one talks about redoing the basement. And we all kind of go around. It's all very sort of to be expected. And then it gets to me. And I would say, um, I'm doing great. I'm finally through the admin of divorce. I'm feeling better. I've gained some weight back. I'm not crying 50 times a day. Life is good. I'm figuring it out. The only downside is that I'm I'm unbelievably horny all day long, and I don't know what to do about it. And some woman would say, oh, my gosh, you should have sex with Steve. This would be great. And then everybody laughs, and then someone else would say, oh, gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Could you take Mark like every other Wednesday? And some, you know... Someone else would say, oh, gosh, Tom would absolutely, can I get Tom in there? So then I, you know, would make the joke. I'd say, sure, I'll take Mark every other Wednesday and Tom, you know, the first Tuesday of the month. And and so everybody would giggle and laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And then we would move on to the next order of business. This setup, I call it now the setup of me saying I'm just distractedly horny and I don't know what to do about it. The punchline came back at me time and time and time again from all these different women. So many different women would say that you should take, because I would say, you know, the caveat is I don't want to be dating. I don't want another husband. I don't even want to get out there right now. I don't want to have to deal with where you're from. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I don't want to deal with STDs, you know, and 
like trying to ascertain, does this guy have, you know, I don't want somebody in my home with a child, you know, that I don't know that I just met. Like there are all these reasons to not really want to start dating right away necessarily. But the idea of safe, disease-free sex with somebody you kind of know and don't care about is appealing on a completely science fiction level because it would never work. It would never work. Well, I kind of want to know how long this uh, art imitating life story goes. (laughs) Right. So So the joke happened so many times with so many different groups and younger women and older women and women like in their 70s would make that joke and 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 you know white women and black women and ladies from church and ladies from you know all different kinds of groups of women made that joke if they have been having sex with the same man for a long time in a long-term committed monogamous relationship somebody said please have sex with my husband and everybody thought it was hilarious. So after that happened so many times, I thought, there's a story here. And I'm the one to write it. This is a great jumping off point for a story. What would happen if a group of women said, let's try this. Let's really see if we can manage sanctioned infidelity in a small community where everybody knows everybody and and see what happens so that was my jumping off point but no i never there was no life imitating art it never happened i mean that was the that was the you know the joke around town was everybody thought it was them everybody thought it was me whoever you know people love to get all excited in that way but no it never happened as far as i know I got to tell you, when the plot twisted that way, I was blindsided. I was not expecting it <laughs> at all. Good. That's good. It really, really took me by surprise in a, a very audacious, kind of hilarious way. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I, when I was thinking about chatting to you this afternoon, I also didn't expect it to be based on a part of your life either. It's a really brave story to tell. It was a brave, I felt it was a brave story. You know, there's, there's a real, yes, it's brave, but also um, aging is conducive to bravery. And I think the older we get, the braver we get. And I think when somebody's, and then to, to, on top of that, when our lives fall apart, really crumble and the story that we've told ourselves that's going to unfold and this is the order it's going to unfold in and this is how it's all going to work out and when that is ripped asunder I think there's this loose this kind of freedom of well anything could happen now really because anything could happen now totally so you know I think about like La Femme Nikita like I could become a a, a hit woman, you know, I could work for the CIA, like I can do anything now. Because the notion of, you know, living together with in, in matrimony is, is gone. So I can rewrite the script, and any really anything could happen. So it, that included for me, 
writing a book, writing the book I wanted to write, which I thought would be audacious and funny and compelling and, and really resonate with a lot of people. It was very raw and very real. Like that was yeah. the kind of overwhelming sense that I had reading it. It was, I, I, I really enjoyed the last three days, I gotta say. <laughs> I'm um, so glad. So talk me a little bit through how the idea came to fruition. I mean, obviously sort of your personal experience, what you were living through, the, the jokes that people were making around you. How, how did you go from making those observations to deciding that it was going to be a story? What was that process like? Um, so I've been a writer for many, many years, and I had written um, so many different kinds of things. I've written uh, screenplays and personal essays and short stories. I've had a newspaper column. Um, I've written songs. I have a band. I front a band, and I continue to write songs. I'm a lyricist as well. And uh, so one of the things I had not yet written was a novel. So the, the confluence of this joke being repeated back to me and my son becoming old enough to go to summer camp. So he was going to be occupied every day from 8.30 to 3 p.m. And I was uh, getting a master's, so I didn't have any classes for the summer. So I was off. So now, what am I going to do all day? I, I'm a terrible tennis player. I'm terrible at a lot of things, um, but I can write. And so I thought maybe this is my time to tuck into a novel. You know, that's the one mountain I hadn't conquered was the novel. So I did the NaNoWriMo, which was National Novel Writing Month, where you bang out 1,700 words a day for 30 days in a row. And at the end of one month, you've completed a 50,000-word rough draft of your novel. And I gave myself permission to do it. And I found a quiet writing space, and I did it. And I finished it. A lot of people start. It's a hard thing to do. It's a slog. It's not easy. And I started, and I finished it. And by the end, so I did it in July. By the end of July, um, I had 50,000 words, but my story was only about halfway done. So then I continued with the story, and I finished by New Year's. So I had a 100,000 word first draft of a novel by New Year's. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I find it really interesting when I hear people talk about their ideas because so often I think people think, well, like, I just had this great story to tell and it, it just sort of fell out of me. But it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, like I'd ne- I'm a writer, but I'd never written a novel. I'd written everything else, but not that form. I had this story and life gave me eight hours a day for a period of time. So all of these different forces had to come together for this project to truly get born. I think sometimes we glamorise where ideas come from or creativity, um, but sometimes the stars just have to align a little bit to to make it happen. Absolutely. I also think I tell tell a story when I do book events that, um, you know, as you've read it, it's, it's quite racy, it's very funny, but it's also very super sexy. And um, I didn't let my mother read it until not after surprised. It was, <laughs> <after> <laughs> it was, right? Until after, not only until after it was finished, but until after I got a book deal. I did not let my mother read it until the advanced reader copy came in the mail. Like when I knew this was really happening, it was really going to hit bookshelves. 
Then I said, okay, are you ready to read this? And she said, yes. So I let her read it. And of course, it was a bit of a nerve wracking couple of days. And then she came back to me and said, you know, I read your book. I said, "Uh oh, okay, well, I'm ready. What'd you think? And she said, I really, really loved it. I said, you did? And she said, I did. I loved it. I thought it was so funny. And I just loved all the characters and everything you had to say and the story. She said, I will say one thing, though. I said, what? She said, I'm really glad your father's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes, that is very true, Mom. You are so right. And, And in addition to this, you know, all these stars aligning, one of the stars happened to be that my father had died not too long prior. So removing, I think for a lot of artists and, and, go, and circling back to what you were saying about bravery, right, right. I think we have so many obstacles to being really honest and really giving ourselves permission to try things and to fail publicly and to... Um, to do that thing that we want to do or that we're compelled to do. But there's a voice, there's a parent. It's usually the, the voice of our mother, the voice of our father, or there's something that's stopping us. And so even though he would have been incredibly supportive, I don't think the book would have been as racy if he'd been alive, you know? Or maybe it would have been, and I, he just wouldn't have read it. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. You know. Yeah. What do you think that fear with your mum was about? Was it just the sheer fact that it was so racy or was it that it was your first novel or? I think it was the racy part. I mean, I think if it was an adorable, you know, sort of, um, you know, or a middle grade or a YA, you know, I think if it was anything, I think sex is tricky between parents and children. Uh, through through the generations, even though it's such a normal pedestrian thing. Um, so I think if it had been anything else, it would have been easy to show her. Yeah. But, and I even said, you don't have to, you can skip, you can turn the page, turn the page. She's like, no, I read the whole thing. I said, great, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. So mm-hmm. if, you're, if your mom, who I imagine is a huge supporter of your other areas of work, wasn't able to be on that journey with you and sort of support you through the development process who were your big supporters um ah well I have friends I mean I would have to say I have some friends who are writers and they made themselves incredibly available to me which was amazing um and I would call them and say what do I do now or what's the next step or you know how do I make this uh how do I make this work you know they I had there was generosity the entire journey. So the generosity of the woman, the the the, uh, the novelist who I approached at a book reading to say, I'm a writer, how do I get an agent? And she said, take the name of my agent. I was like, really? And she said, yes, call her up. Here's her name. And she became my agent. And she's, to this day, fantastic. So Beth Davy of Davy Literary Media. And so the generosity of that um, writer to do that for me. And then the generosity of like Wendy Shanker, who is a, a published author friend of mine, who gave me ideas about um, 
finding readers. You know, uh, this guy, uh, Ricky Rakin, who I grew up with, who's also a novelist, he said, you have to find readers. You have to find people to read your story and give you feedback. While you're developing it. Absolutely. Between drafts. I mean, there were 11 drafts to Nicky Town. Wow. So over five years. Um, because it was my first. So I had to go through the process of writing it and then finding an agent. But you, you know, you, you, have, you fix it, you get it in the best possible shape. I think it was three drafts to get in, get the agent and then another two drafts before getting a publisher. Because at each step, you want to make sure they see the best that you can give them. The publisher, I mean, that, that was an incredible, the incredible generosity of a friend of mine. And that was a, a kismet story um, that that was born out of uh, Hurricane Sandy and losing power. And a friend of mine went to a Starbucks and said um, to use power to, to she and her husband to charge their their uh, laptops. And all the outlets were taken, and they were leaving despondent. There's no power. We have no power. And they bumped into a couple that they just knew from a yearly annual Halloween costume party in town. And they said, what are you doing? We have no power. And the couple said, we have power. Come to our house. Use our power. So they went over, sat at the dining room table. And my girlfriend, Rebecca Brownsville, said to this guy, Brendan Deneen, what do you do for a living? And he said, I work at Macmillan. I turn books into television shows. And she said, I just read my friend's novel. It's hilarious. You've got to read it. So then he tracked me down at the Halloween costume party a week later in costume and said, I've heard about your novel. I'd love to read it. Oh, you're kidding. Talk about timing. Yeah. How about that? But if my girlfriend, Rebecca, hadn't exhibited the generosity to say, my girlfriend, I just was a reader for my friend's novel. And, and it's really worth checking out. You would love it. I mean, she didn't have to say that, and she did. So she really got the whole ball rolling. And so many times I've, I, I feel that people don't go that little extra. I mean, it's so easy to pick up the phone or to mention to a friend of a friend or a roommate to reach out to a college roommate and say, you know, I have this friend that got a screenplay or I've got, you know, I've got a friend. And so that was done for me. It's also really easy to do when the idea is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, yes, of course. It's a lot easier when you when you like it. And I think she really loved it. So yeah. She uh, that's that's really nice hearing how the idea was sort of propelled along the way by other people who saw the potential in the idea and, you know, wanted to support you as well. Yes. And I think most artists will, are probably so ready to shut shut it down. Like, I think a lot of artists are like, what do you think? You know, I can quit anytime. I can cancel it. I can shut it down. I can put away my paints or, you know, whatever they're doing. And, and to have people say, no, 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 keep going. It's so valuable. Just friends, just my friends, Betsy and Bill, who were constantly saying whenever they saw me, how's the writing going? How's the writing going? Just asking that question can really boost and bolster a writer. Or how's the painting going? Or the choreo- you know, the choreographing or whatever it is that they're doing. I'm sure at times hard to stay open as well though because you know it's a it's a half-baked baby that they're asking about and your heart and soul and all your vulnerabilities are poured into this project and you're sort of you know opening it up before it's finished so that takes bravery too I think. Absolute bravery which I think is what stops I think that 
is absolutely what sort of separates the, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a self calling kind of, um, you know, art is not for the weak to be an artist is not for the, uh, weak willed. You have to just forge ahead, you know, regardless of, well, on that point, what are some of the criticisms that you um, had to deal with along the way and how did you handle them? Well, thankfully I had very few outspoken critics. I had, yeah, I would say I had very few outspoken critics with regards to the process of writing a novel. People were either super supportive or just never even mentioned it and didn't ask and didn't really care, which is also a huge segment of the population just doesn't ever say, what are you working on? How's it going? Um, Cause we're drowning in narcissists, but uh, uh, very few outspoken critics to the process. However, then once your bravery propels you to the point of publication and you really are laid bare. So now people get to, tell you what they think. Um, and that's a really interesting process because, uh, and this is true again, with anything, with art, with music, if you're a composer, if you're a choreographer, if you're an artist, you really have to have some ego discipline. You know, I'm sure you've heard people say, never read your reviews, you know, don't read the good ones and don't read the bad ones. And I think I, couldn't, I would never be able to do that, just oh, for the record. You have no idea. So the, I think the first terrible review I received from some, you know. Two-bit publication. Well, it wasn't even a publication. It's like everyone's a critic now. So you can, you can be a 23-year-old who loves to read books and go on to YouTube. You can, you can shoot a, a little movie of yourself trashing somebody's book. Because it's really, it really is not the audience. It's not, everybody is not the audience for Nookie Town, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, um, it's, so, so to have that happen, to have people not like it or not like to talk about sex or think about sex, if they have a prickly relationship to sex or if they have a prickly relationship to monogamy or if they've had a terrible experience with uh, infidelity. Right. Um, or if they've just never been married or to somebody for a long time, or if they don't have friends who've been married to the same person to, for, you know, for a long time. It can be hard to understand or, or to really get into this, this world that I create with this story of these girlfriends, these two sets of girlfriends, you know, the long time marrieds and the, the recently horny divorcees. So um, when that happens and there's negative feedback, the onus is on the creator to not listen and to keep the gates open and to keep the channel open and just to keep and just to plow onward, you know, tip your hat and keep going, keep moving. And it's a real discipline to not read the good and not read the bad because your ego is dying for it. But, you know, you, you just got to keep working, you know, get back to work and um, not 
uh, it, it's hard, but it's doable. But it takes a discipline. It takes a real discipline to not read that stuff and not let it stop you. Again, it goes back to art is not for the weak. You can't let it stop you. You got to keep going. Right. And it feels like this idea of art is not for the weak is sort of a very true mantra for you, even in your, the sounds like I haven't read it yet, but the, the topic of your second novel feels like yes. it draws on that as, yeah. a lot as well. Through the lens of that theme, being not for the weak, like how many times did you think of throwing in the towel and uh, what got you over the hurdle? Uh, well, for Nookie Town, I think uh, the, the hardest part of the process for me is never writing the book. It's, um, it's how it's received. That's really hard. And Nookie Town was exciting. I mean, Nookie Town, um, well, so one story that was tricky, and but I found it challenging and kind of fun, was uh, I had written one or two additional uh, drafts for my publisher. And they came back to me one day and said, um, we're loving the latest draft. Here's what we'd like, though. You know, on that, um, on page 71, where your character, the main, the protagonist says to her girlfriends, I just want to get laid. We want that to be page one. We want that to be the first line of the book. And I'm like, but wait, what? The 70 pages, like, what do <laughs> I do with all that information and all that setup and all that story? And they're like, figure it out. So I think a weaker person might have been like, I can't do this. That's crazy. But I yeah. felt it was a challenge. Like, that's a great writer's challenge. All right, take your book, 70 pages in. That's now page one. Now you have to sprinkle. You have to cut and paste, figure out what's germane to the story and and sprinkle it in and, and you know, keep moving. Um, I think with Twisted Family Values, I just, boy, there's so many hurdles and roadblocks to publishing. Well, it's, what got you to go back and write a second book? If for you, the, the process of writing isn't necessarily the most challenging part, but the, you know, having lived through the, the revisions and the rewrites and the, the critics and, and, and all of that stuff that does kind of challenge that art is not for the weak idea. Yeah. Like what was the motivation to go back again and, and suffer through it all again? <laughs> well, I did. I had a two book deal with St. Martin's <laughs> Press. So that helped. Contract. Um, <laughs> contract. Um, no, but I did. I was very excited about the second book because it was so much fun writing the first. And I wanted to take on a different, another taboo. And I wanted to continue to explore like a different range. So the second book is four generations, 50 years of one family, um, which is really fun. A funny family. I think what's got me over the hurdle to go and back and keep writing is the I think for most artists, they would tell you that they can't help themselves, that it, it's not a choice. You can't, I mean, if somebody, if somebody could tell you to stop that easily, and if you were to stop, then you probably weren't cut out for it in the first place. Right. If it's that easy to stop, if one or two or 10 or 20 people say, you really should not do this, um, and you still want to do it, and you still have to do it, then I think you just keep going. And maybe you, re, you you could recalibrate maybe your day job. Maybe you say, okay, so this isn't, things aren't falling into place for me. You know, 
I'm going to have to wait tables. But um, I think you just, you tell yourself to keep going. Because some, some people have somebody in their life that says keep going, but not everybody does. So you have to be that voice for yourself. Right, right. So what's next? If novels were sort of a new foray for you, are you is there a third novel in there the works? There is. There's a third novel in the works. The third novel is um, is really fun. It's a, a different direction. Again, it's a sort of a road trip uh, summer. It's it's two girlfriends, best friends, um, backpacking through Europe in the summer of 1988. So it's I call it a historical romance, even though. From, from the late 80s um <laughs> but uh but it's it's a really fun it's, it's a, another meditation on friendship and adventure and it's going to be kind of racy but not as graphic so it'll be a gentler a kinder gentler sort of romance romance novel but I want to I want to tuck into that genre and see if I can and see if I can really nail that the romance I love rom-coms and I love you know, when people, even the first two books, even even though that they are not uh, classified as romance novels, they are still romantic and things work out in the end. So um, I like that. I like writing that things work out in the end. I, know. I was kind of, I was secretly hoping that I would get on this call and you would be like, Happened to a friend of a friend of mine. No, I, I wish I could tell you that. It's it really, it has not happened to me. I'm way too, I'm yeah. way no, I not mean, nearly brave enough for that. Yeah. But I did have two girlfriends, two, that don't know each other, confide in me that while they were going through their horny divorcee stage, they each of them met somebody at a bar at JFK and took them back to their car at long-term <gasps> parking and had sex with them in their car. That's in the book. Well, hang on. Did that, is that in the book because of yes. those stories? Or yes. they were like, wait, that happened to me. That <laughs> that's- happened. Yes. That's in the book because two people told me that. So I thought, well, if two women are doing it, thousands of women must be doing it. I bet. Well, that was the surprising part to me because I was, I was actually thinking this morning, what genre does this fit in? Because it's not really a romance novel because it's funny. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I guess it's a comedy, but it's sort of very, it's almost a drama as well. And then I got really upset about thinking about the idea of chiclet and how that's not of really course. a genre because it's just saying chicks will like it. Right. Which is offensive. Well, and there's um, no such thing as men's lit. Right, right. There's women's lit, but there's not men's lit. Oh, you know, there are all kinds of women writers that don't so get them started. How do you define it? I mean, I define it, unfortunately, it, there isn't a genre. You can't go to the funny dramedy. There's no dramedy, you know, subgenre in publishing. There is in, in television and movies. I mean, there are a lot of great films and movies, the, the, the stuff that I'm, uh, sorry, television, that I'm drawn to is the, is the, is that anything that can skirt that line. And sort of butts the two up against one another. Yeah. Especially if it's a dark comedy or a black comedy. I mean, holy smokes. Yeah. You know, that's, it's such a juggling act. And so my genre for those two books is just, you know, literature, women's, women's lit, I think it's probably under, but, um, 
But it is a shame that I think that's what sets my writing apart is that I am funny, but then I also can mine a kind of heavier twist of family values is a little bit heavier. It takes on a little bit of uh, heavier stuff, um, a little bit darker, but, but it's also a funny family. And that's, you know, the other thing I'm attracted to is, is that people with a sense of humor don't live an MGM musical life. They also go through hardship. They get divorced. They, they get cancer diagnoses and they have, you know, horrible things befall them. Your sense of humor doesn't go away. It's not one or the other. It's not a binary way to live. You can be miserable and have a great sense of humor (laughs) simultaneously, concurrently. So those are the stories that I sort of, uh, that are attracted, that I'm, I'm attracted to. Yeah. And, the, and this, this one I'm writing now about the two, the best girlfriends, the best friends backpacking through Europe. Um, you know, it's going to be lighter. I think it's a little bit of a, of a rebound from Twisted Family Values, which was a bit heavier than Nookie Town. So going back, a little bit of a pendulum thing going back and forth. So when's that slated to be finished? That is, uh, I'm hoping to, fin- this is, that's, it's in the early stages. So I have to finish the first draft and then I have to find a book contract. So, so I, I have, I have a question. Find a publisher for that. What, if Nookie Town took five years to, from where to go, and I don't know how long your second book took and like how, how, how much has the process shortened for you as you've gone through it? So as it's a learning process in the record business, they say that, you know, it takes a lifetime to record your first album because it's a lifetime's worth of experiences that create, and you've written, you know, 200, 300 songs, and then they get to choose the best 20 to put on, you know, this release, your first release to catapult you, catapult you into the, the zeitgeist of what's going on. And then, and then they say, okay, let's have your second album. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And all of a sudden, shoot, instead of choosing your top 20 out of, 300 now you're choosing your top 20 out of 40 or 50 so it's a similar process with um in the publishing world you 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 fine-tune you know so many drafts like i said i think it was did i say 11 drafts i think you said 11 in in about five years because that was how long it took me to write it to get the agent to get the publisher drafts in between readers lots of readers whom, whom i'm so grateful for and then it finally comes out. And the slate usually is about two years out. It's about a year and a half or two years out. And then the second book, they were like, okay, let's go. Let's go. And I was like, that, oh, oh, oh. so it's tricky. You have to shift, recalibrate your brain. You have to ex- exercise all those characters. You almost have to shove them out the door. Like, here's your hat. What's your hurry? <clears throat> Get all those characters out of your head, which can take which is a feat in and of itself because you've been promoting and promoting and promoting, but then you have to shove them out of the way and make room for these new characters to kind of bubble up and create themselves and speak to you. So it was shorter. I mean, I think it was supposed to be two years. It took me longer. It was really hard. It was a sophomore, you know, a lot of people said, oh yeah, your second book is really hard because they want it fast and you've had all this time to build and create and finesse a first book, and now your second book. So I think the second book was five drafts and maybe two years or two and a half years. So it's definitely condensed for sure. But I do think that the, the, 
more you do it, you know what to expect and you know what's needed. And you've answered a lot. You've had a lot of questions answered. So you can um, hustle a little bit, a little bit better. Right. Um, so, but I think bravery is key in every, in all of these instances and age. I think aging, older people are not as, because one of the great byproducts of being an older person, an older woman, especially if you no longer have decided to not care about what the people in the room think, you are more likely to explore all the ideas you have because you're not going to self-edit. You're not going to stop yourself from saying what you want to say in the, in the creative process or in the brainstorming meeting, you know, whatever the, wherever you're working, the young people are, I think, more likely to not speak up because they are still in that phase of their lives where they are so concerned with who they are becoming and how they are perceived. That phase between, what, 12 and 40? Kind of. Yeah, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's, you're right. It starts, at, it starts at 12, but it's not, well, but think of it as not bleak because at 40, all of a sudden, I mean, I, I would think that that's, those would be the women and the voices and the idea makers that you want in the room. You want at least a couple of 40 year olds and a couple of 50 year old broads in the room because they're going to say the thing that the 30 year olds might be too afraid to say or the 20 year olds haven't even thought of yet. <clears throat> so to me, turning 40, turning 50 is this incredible creative, allows for incredible creative freedom. So what do you think you would have been like writing a book at 20 or 30? <gasps> totally different because, you know, you just think, oh, where do I start? And what if it doesn't do this? And how do I, what if this person doesn't like it? And, you know, my boy, what if my boyfriend doesn't like it? <laughs> I just think, I think that we stop our, we throw up so many roadblocks and the older we get and the less we care uh, or less, uh, less, the less we assign, the less weight we assign to out, the outside gaze and the outside lens, you know, um, it really frees us up. And I, I would just think that for an idea any kind of idea manufacturing scenario, it would behoove you to have uh, older people in the room because you're going to get stuff. You're just that you might get the wilder stuff, Unpre unpredictable, uncensored, unfiltered. You know, because what do they care? It's great. Well, when it leads to Nookie Town. <laughs> I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I really I, did. I really did. And I have a terrible poker face. I like part of, my, <laughs> part of my job, and I don't know if I should say this in the podcast, but part of my job is like looking at creative ideas all the time. And yeah. I remember a creative team once telling me like, they, they're like, oh, we always look at you because you have a terrible <gasps> poker face. We can tell oh, whether you love funny. it or hate it immediately. Because yeah. yeah. I just, I can't, I have, I've got no filter. So. You should put like a piece of, you should put like a piece of. <laughs> I just turn my camera off. <laughs> Or like a shower curtain, like one of yeah. those, like, with the lens, put some Vaseline on the lens, you know? Yeah, post-COVID, post I've got some saviour when you're actually in the room in person. Like, yeah. They're like, oh, 
where's the energy? <laughs> yeah, but anyway. it's true. Like if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're thinking, I'm not getting, I'm not getting the ideas that I need. And I think this goes for books and for art um, and music. Like who's really pushing the envelope? It might be the very, very young, but it also, I think, is the older thinker the older thinkers just not censoring themselves the way the in-between ages do yeah no that's that's so true well i'm looking forward to turning 40 then yes you should and you're gonna love 50 it's fantastic (laughs) it's really great because you're just gonna be like i don't care i'm gonna do whatever i want and everyone else is just gonna have to love me anyway it's great Thanks, Holly. That was really great. I enjoyed that story. Now, it sounded like you two were having fun. What were your takeaways from chatting with Tori? It was a lot of fun talking to her. I, honestly, I don't even know where to start. Her, um, There's so much to take away from her story. She embraces vulnerability in her storytelling. There's a bravery that comes with it. It was really interesting to hear her talk about life experience and how without her life experience, she probably wouldn't have written the same novel and even sort of the external things that were happening in her life, how that impacted um, the way that she wrote and and the bravery that she found in her voice. So I really enjoyed chatting with her. Yeah, I could tell. So how can people check out more about VC Chickering? Um, Yeah, the best way is to head over to her website, vcchickering.com. She's on Twitter and Instagram at vcchickering on both. And you can head to YouTube to listen to her band, Tori Erstwell and the Monties. Thanks, Holly. So that does it for us this week. We'd like to give a special thanks to Kelly Tuggle for connecting us to BC Chickering. If you'd like to hear how other creative thinkers, company founders, and technology innovators thought up their ideas, be sure to subscribe to Gray Matter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email inbox. It's simply podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, but most importantly, tell a friend. It really helps the show. Thanks for listening to Gray Matter. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petroulis, produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon, mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios. Additional support by Christina Hyde, John Jenkinson, Grace McDougall, Lydia Dizon, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.